Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Pamela Weiss. She is a Buddhist teacher authorized in two traditions, Zen and Theravada, and is the first layperson in the Suzuki Roshi Soto Zen lineage to receive full Dharma transmission. Thank you so much, Pam, for joining me today on the Spark Zen podcast. Thank you, Heather. It's wonderful to be here. Pam, there's so many places we could begin this conversation with. However, one place I feel like is important to start is with a conversation about suffering. Obviously, it's the first noble truth, and it's also one of the marks of existence that the Buddha teaches about. And it's also how you start off your memoir, A Bigger Sky, Awakening of Fierce Feminine Buddhism. So could you speak a little bit about the suffering that you encountered as a child, and then also how that propelled you onto the Buddhist path. I think some people come into practice or to Dharma teaching with some kind of aspirational, you know, I want to be enlightened or I I want to learn something. But for many of us, we definitely come in through what I call the Dukkha Dharma door. And that was certainly the case for me. And there were many things in my growing up years that were wonderful. And there were many things that were difficult. And probably the most significant dukkha that in terms of leading me to practice was growing up living with a chronic illness. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 10 years old. At a very young age, I had both suffering and impermanence sort of in my face. And I didn't know the language then, but the teaching of old age sickness and death was foisted upon me (laughs) at a much younger age than I was really prepared to know what to do with it. And so it took a lot of avoidance and denial and misery of all kinds to realize I needed some help. And I looked for help in many places and didn't really find it through the adults around me, through the medical system, even in my education. And so when I came to Zen Center for the first time, not literally knocking on the door and coming in for a Saturday session, I was really struck by something that I more felt than anything there, which I couldn't have named at the time, but probably I would describe now as a quality of presence. And as I stepped in further, it was a huge relief to me that the people who I met talked about dukkha. They talked about suffering. It wasn't something to push aside or try to avoid. It was right there at the center. And this was a huge relief for me. You mentioned in the book that no one ever talked about suffering in your in your family. Exactly. And I think that's true. It was true in my family. It was also true in our culture, largely, that, you know, we're bombarded with advertising where everybody looks happy all the time. And then we wonder what's wrong with me. And especially in the world today where there's so much wrong, it just piles on to add the assumption of it shouldn't be this way. You know, I shouldn't be struggling. I shouldn't be suffering. And also with, with regard to suffering, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family and 
although I could see everybody was suffering in their own way in my neighborhood and as well as in my household, it just was our cross to bear. And I never found any salvation in Roman Catholicism. That's what, yeah. that's what started me seeking was like, oh, I'm not feeling any relief from all these heavy emotions. So what, mm -hmm. where can I go? What can I do? And I think it's a little different growing up in a Jewish family where there is a clear understanding of the intensity of horribleness that humans can inflict on one another. There's no question about it. And there's a certain kind of pressure in as I was an upper middle class liberal Jewish person to not get bogged down in that, to kind of overcome it, to assimilate to a certain degree, to accommodate, to be successful in the world as a, almost as a way of self-protection. Like if we do this, then even though, you know, our family members had those same privileges in the countries they came from and they didn't make it. But that shadow, I talk about that in the book as well, was profound. And like you, I didn't find any solace in going to temple. I loved the stories. I loved the culture. But at a spiritual level, I didn't find a big resonance with, you know, Yahweh, the God looking down from on high, who didn't seem like a very nice guy, frankly. So at that part of it wasn't helpful to me in terms of struggling with my own struggles. And what were the few, as we say in Buddhism, the proximate causes that brought you knocking on the door at a city center for that Saturday session? Hmm. Yeah, it was actually a very specific thing that happened, which was that my, my closest friend at the time, who is still one of my closest friends today, her younger sister, was killed in an automobile accident. And I had been in school and college with her sister who was younger than I was. So I had known her and that tragedy just kind of shattered any semblance of being young, upper middle-class privileged people because this sadness just landed on our doorsteps and kind of wrenched our hearts open. And I traveled with my friend to a place in Mexico called Mardajare. And I was introduced to meditation when I was there. It was not the built up place that it is today, but we sat in this tiny little room. And at the end of the 20 minutes or whatever that we sat, the guide Jose snapped his fingers and that was the end of meditation. And the first time I saw a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it was in Spanish. It was, you know, sitting in that little room. And when I came back from that trip, something had really shifted in me and it caused me to decide I'm going to find out about meditation. And so I actually looked in the yellow pages. <laughs> I looked up meditation. What are, and what are I, yellow pages, Pam? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a long time ago. So, and I, from that, went and visited the Zen Center. That's always fascinating to hear people's way seeking mind talks, right? How did yep. they come to Buddhism? And yep. like, oh, you discovered Buddhism in Mexico. And once I got there, like I said, I, I found the, the Zen center very strange, but I felt something and kind of just literally fell right in. 
I was in my 20s, so I was and quite lost in many ways. I am grateful to this day that that's what I fell into and not something else. Me too. I was going to say there's so many other pits of despair we could fall into before. Well, sometimes we're in those pits and that's how we get to the monastery. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're able to escape them somehow, I guess, through our karmic momentum. Since you spent about five years at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, I'm wondering if you could just highlight some of the experiences that really helped you to wake up and be able to be more present with your suffering. And there's a line in here early on in the book where you say about the formality of Zen practice, especially in a monastic container, you say, the precision of the external forms offered a safe container lending a steadiness that allowed the chaos inside of me to ease and unwind. Oh, that's so well done. So well said. So I, well I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's exactly how it was. You know, I feel like my internal world was so chaotic, you know, and confused and despairing and lost and wishing for something that I didn't even know what it was and there was a way in which the forms and the formality of the practice, it was like, like a trellis, you know, it gave me something or like swaddling, you know, you swaddle a baby and it helps them calm down. That was how it felt. And it was within that kind of tight container of monastic practice in particular, that I felt safe enough, I think, to allow the upsurge of very strong emotion. I mean, I remember days and days of just sitting in the meditation hall, just weeping. And often I had no idea what, there was no content. I didn't know what, why I was crying, but it was okay. And nobody told me to stop and nobody tried to analyze me. It was just understood that, okay, that's what's happening now. And I felt held without being tinkered with, you know, that's interesting when you say that about not being tinkered with and yet still feeling the container of practice and of community that was holding you, not physically, of course, not, not physically holding you in an embrace, but just a way we're able to sink and settle and surrender because we are in this container of a monastic environment. And you also talked about the monastic schedules, like putting a snake in a bamboo. Oh, pole. yeah, yeah exactly. That's one of my favorite stories. I, separate, yeah. I don't know where it comes from. Is it a koan or? I don't think so. I think it's just an image that somebody uses. And they, I don't know if it comes from monastic practice or just Zen training in a more normal way. But my understanding of it was that people would complain a lot about the sort of rigidity of the schedule. You know, you're getting up at 3.30 in the morning and then this and then this and then this and then this. And for me, it was inside that tight container that it was holding me enough that I could allow whatever was inside me to be felt without thinking I'm going to lose my mind, which was, I think, my big fear. But also it was described to me that it's only when a snake is inside the bamboo pole that it can actually feel the way it wants to move. And if you're just out in the garden being a snake, you don't really know who you are. You're just a snake in a garden. But if you feel the constriction of the, the limitations of the schedule, you start to feel, oh, this is my shape. This is who I am. And 
there's a real beauty in that. For me, that image conjures my wiggling, like resisting, right? Mm. I'm resisting or my preferences. I get to feel them more and be mm -hmm. illuminated by them mm -hmm. and also, you know, annoyed by them. <laughs> but, but like you're saying, when you're, when a snake is out in the wilderness, it just gets to do whatever it wants. But when we're in this tighter container, we become illuminated by how we're wiggling, exactly. what, it, what our shapes are, like you're saying, in this tight container. We have some awareness that comes, right? Some self-awareness. And I mean, I think the other thing that you said, but that is worth repeating is the, the impact of the community, particularly at Tassajara. It's so, there's so much hunger, I think, in our world for real community, real sense of connection and relationship and you no know, it may not sound like there's a real relationship when you're silent most of the time but i mean you know and it's quite profound the degree the, the quality of intimacy that comes from practicing shoulder to shoulder with people another pleasure of living at the monastery is also sinking into nature just feeling yes the presence of nature and you talk about that as well, about like sinking your roots into the earth and twining your limbs with the trees and then being able to hear, hear the creek and feel the sky. I had this extraordinary experience with the, the sounds. I mean, you know, because you've spent a lot of time there, but some other folks who are listening may not, but that the sounds of the monastery are so rich and vivid and you know there's the sound of the birds as you move from the dark into the light in the early morning there's the sound of the creek there's the sound of the breeze in the trees there's the sound of the bells and the han and the drums and the people walking on the angawa outside and the breathing of the person next to you it's very it gets very vivid for me especially the sounds and there's a little creek, Kabarga Creek, that runs next to the meditation hall. And there was an experience I had in which it was sort of background sound, you know. And then one day I noticed that between the day before and that day, the sound of the creek had, tr had changed dramatically. It went from like shh to And I asked someone, what, what happened? What was that about? And someone who had been at Tassajara for a decade or so, one of the old timers. And he said, oh, it's the sycamores, which are these beautiful grand old trees that line the pathways of Tassajara. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's the sycamores. And he said, they dropped their water. Mm. It's like, what are you, what? And so it turns out that somehow these trees magically all together, all at once in one night, release the water that they're holding in their roots and it goes into the creek and causes the creek to rise and therefore change its sound and for me it just invoked this sense of complete mystery and wonderment you know like how did all are they talking to each other those trees which of course now we know their trees do talk to each other but it was like the whole world as I got softer and more sensitive, felt more and more alive. And that was just one of the added beauties of that kind of monastic training and experience. For me, the experience was like feeling like nature was running through me rather than yeah. me, me walking on it. Yeah. Right? 
I wasn't, yep. I wasn't walking on the dirt path. It was like dirt path was coming through me. The creek was coming through me. The edges of what we think of as our body or our self get very thin, right? And mm -hmm. we kind of blend a bit with the environment that we're in. So the other two marks of existence, one you already mentioned is impermanence. And then the third one is the not self characteristic. I'm curious how you feel that being in the monastery surrounded by, and I don't even like to use surrounded by the environment. Because again, it makes it feel like we're separate. How is being at the monastery, being in nature, in this container of the schedule also helped you experience impermanence? It's sort of what happens, I think, for anyone who sits in meditation, but double or triple, you know, or quadruple, which is that you begin to see that things are arising and passing all the time. And that thought that you had or that feeling that you had or that sensation that you had, it's here and then it's gone. And that gets highlighted. And instead of functioning from a place of the mind in which there are clear lines drawn between, you know, this event and that event, everything kind of, I think of it like a melting ice cube, everything just kind of softens and gets much more fluid. And that, of course, is true in some ways the most profoundly with our sense of self, that sense of I, me, 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 and all the stories I have about who I am and so on start falling away because everything is softening and melting and getting more fluid in that way. And so it's not that the stories are gone. It's just that we don't grab onto them and believe them in the same way that we might if we weren't in that kind of held container in which everything inside can begin to release. There's a Dogen quote that I really love. He says, reality is an icicle forming in fire. When the, the neocortex becomes less of the dominant way of perceiving the world, like the neocortex takes a little bit of a nap. Because we don't have to, we don't have to worry about the time. We don't have to worry right. about calendars. Nobody mm. even knows what day it is usually. <laughs> so the way that the neocortex kind of takes a back seat to the right brain and the limbic system, we feel this fluidity of ourselves and life rather than feeling like a solid icicle. It reminds me of the, the koan about Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion who has this halo of you know, arms and hands and the eyes in the hand. And in the koan, it says there are eyes, hands and eyes all throughout the body. And the response, that was a, a response to a question. And the correction to that response is, no, the whole body is hands and eyes. And that, I think, is is the other way to say what you're saying. One thing is that the, the thinky mind gets quieter. But the other thing is that the whole body becomes much more sensitive and alive. And so what it is that we take in is it's very rich, you know, the, 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 it's, I think of those, what are those little like CNNs, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, that's what happens for us as we're able to feel safe and supported and held that we can reawaken all those little tendrils. And what we're able to take in is not just our thinking anymore.
That's like the whole body mind becomes a sensing organ. I mean, it already exactly. is, except exactly. we start to we start to feel it that way. We're no longer shutting it down. We're mm -hmm. we're able to get quiet enough to notice that there's all kinds of information coming in, not just thought information. And since we're also very visual creatures, for those of us who have eyesight, we're making mm -hmm. our way through the valley with our eyes open. However, like you're saying about sounds, I also found that my sense of hearing became like, not my first sense, of course, but it's very close to my, to my sight where mm -hmm. I felt more like a, a hearing organ, full body, mind, mm -hmm. hearing organ. I think that, that this whole process that we're talking about of quieting, of kind of unraveling of the sense of the tight sense of self, this sensitivity that allow, is allowed to come forward, that everything becomes more vivid, all of the sensory organs, the seeing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, the hearing, and, and what we would call our intuition. That was certainly true for me. There were sort of remarkable coincidences that would happen. There were things that I knew before I knew them. There, were, there was a quality of knowing that came alive in that setting that, you know, now I know for sure that it's available, but it's much harder to do that or, or be in touch with that in a world where it's so fast, you know, when we're being bombarded by stimulation all the time. As you're saying that, I remember one, like yourself, I have many vivid memories, but one memory really stands out for me, which was I had a dream and you talk a lot about dreams and maybe we could touch on a few of your dreams. I had this vivid dream of a friend of mine in Austin, Texas, uh, where she was sobbing and sobbing, looking for her dog, right? Over and over. I remember coming across her in the dream and, and asking what's happened. And she's like, my dog Fiona is lost. I can't find her. And I was so startled by this dream because this friend is not someone who really ever cried in front of me. So I called her from that phone booth. You know how much fun that phone booth is at Tatsahara? <laughs> the crank phone. <laughs> well, it wasn't the crank then, but it was still uh -huh. something that you weren't really sure exactly if you were ever going to get through. <laughs> <laughs> so I called her on the phone and I told her about this dream and that I was wondering if she was okay. And she said, I put down my dog the other day. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, exactly. wow, mm -hmm. she put her dog down and mm -hmm. I had a dream that she couldn't find her dog and she was sobbing. Yep. This is the, this is part of the teaching of not self. It's not the part that we tend to emphasize, but we could say that there is not something separate solid here. That would be one way of talking about it. And the other way to talk about it is, oh, we're so connected right? We're actually all part of a single cloth that is infinitely and intricately connected. As we start to wake up to that, then we have these kinds of experiences and they can actually become kind of normal feeling at a certain point. And speaking of interdependency, not self, uh, this dependent co-arising, would you mind speaking about this Kensho experience that you had while you were at a meditation retreat at Spirit Rock? It's funny because even now, as you ask the question, I feel there's a little bit of, I think, taboo within the culture the meditation world culture of, you know, you don't really talk about that. I understand that taboo. And 
since I'm a little bit of an iconoclast, I don't always follow <laughs> the tradition. No, I'm not saying I won't say it. I'm just telling you that I'm noticing that reaction as you're asking me the question. Well, I yeah. feel like what's helpful actually in, in speaking about it is A, it's encouraging, I think, for people, right? Mm -hmm. And and not that it's it's not the goal necessarily, especially if you're a Soto Zen practitioner. In this Soto Zen lineage, it's so hidden right. that it's no longer even anything that people talk about or that <laughs> people are even questioned about or it's verified. It's just buried. And I feel <laughs> like maybe that pendulum that swung so far to one side of, right. hey, don't ever talk about Kensho, which I know is something that Suzuki Roshi mentioned um, <laughs> in one of his talks, but also he was talking to a bunch of new Zen students in America. And since you mentioned it in the book, I just thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to just relay whatever you like to relay about it? What fundamentally shifted for you after, <laughs> after this experience? What, what I'd say is to preface what I'm about to say by making sure, and I think it's part of why people don't talk about it, is that it can become hearing somebody else's experience. It can become this sort of gold ring that you're going for. And there is nothing worse than imagining that there's a gold ring that you're going for in practice because it will make you miserable. Certainly was true for me in my early practice in Zen. I had a lot of concentration because I was in a lot of physical pain. And so I had what I didn't know then, because as you said, it doesn't get talked about, but what I later learned were sort of deep states of what are called jhana or deep states of concentration, which are kind of blissful, right? And I would fall into these states of bliss, which were such a reprieve from the pain in my body. And then for years, I chased those experiences because they were remarkable and amazing. And at some point I discovered that the chasing of them was more miserable than anything else. <laughs> so my own pendulum swung from chasing, chasing, chasing to like refusing. And the experience that you're asking about actually didn't happen in Soto Zen, it happened in the insight tradition. And I, the reason that that's important is because I feel like different traditions have different maps and different sort of doorways in and orientation. And my own experience having practiced in a number of different traditions in Soto Zen, in the Diamond Approach, in Mahamudra, in Insight Tradition, is that my, probably coming from my early years of monastic training and so on, my system was sensitive enough that I would tend to pick up whatever the particular map was of the training that I was participating in. And so the experience that I had that you're calling Kensho wouldn't have been called Kensho because it was in that tradition called the Progress of Insight. And it was a very specific map that came out of the Burmese tradition in which you go through a series of dukkha and dukkha and more dukkha, like seeing different aspects of dukkha really clearly in a way that is meant to disillusion you from imagining that you're ever going to get what you want from worldly life, which is pretty much where it took me. But I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was just having a particularly bad retreat. But the people around me knew and they were sort of encouraging me in a particular direction. And at some point in my experience, what happened was that my 
mind stream, the experience of my mind stream started to speed up. So I was sitting and I was able to notice this is happening and this is happening and sort of I wasn't making a big noting project of it, but I was aware of what was going on. And then all of a sudden it started going faster and faster. And it was like being in a rushing river. And at some point, my mental capacity to notice what ha was happening couldn't keep up. And I, it was the, the feeling I had was that I sort of just dropped into the river and then the river went off a cliff. <laughs> Literally, I felt myself go off the edge of the cliff down a waterfall and then everything stopped. And that in, again, in the progress of insight and the Theravadan tradition describes that as a experience of cessation. And it is that consciousness actually stops for some period of time. I don't know how long it lasted because I wasn't there to notice. <laughs> what I know is that when I came back, kind of woke up, as it were, from that experience, everything was different. And of course, everything was also the same. It appeared the same, but it was like my whole system had done a 180 turn. And I felt even more intensely that kind of non-separation from everything and full here-ness of everything. And who I thought I had been up to that point was erased. And maybe the most profound piece that if I had doubt about what was happening that happened for me was that I had gone into this retreat. It was a month-long retreat riddled with some kind of illness. We didn't know what it was. We thought maybe I had Lyme disease. At the time, my joints were swollen and I had, was having headaches and fatigue and all kinds of stuff. And after this experience, all the symptoms were gone, completely 100% lifted. So I knew something had happened. <laughs> but that was sort of the feeling afterwards was like, oh, ev everything, whatever I thought was true had just flipped on its head. And there were moments that it felt frightening, but mostly it was just enormously freeing. I felt very like, oh, anything's possible. What you say warms my heart. I'm very appreciative of your conveying that story because I had a similar experience while I was at Tassahara, mm -hmm. which I, I don't think I've ever spoken about, especially not on a podcast. But I, you can edit it out I if can you edit want. It out if I want. I was one of the ceremonial attendants, what we call the Doan Rio, as you know, at Tasahara. And I was the Doan, so I was ringing the bells. And when we're chanting, this was in, the, and this was during a session, so it was already even more concentrated. And during the Daihishin Dharani, in the middle of it, the, the officiating priest steps back and then goes up and offers incense in the middle of the chant. So I thought, well, why don't I just listen, close my eyes and just listen to the chant, listen to the officiating priest's voice so that when she stands up from her kneeling on the bowing mat, I could hear the change in her voice, right? And then I would just ring the bell. I'd open my eyes and ring the bell. Well, when I was focusing in that way, my mind on the Daihishin Dharani, on her voice, I zapped out of existence. The way I described it was a non-phenomenological arising. So it was this experience where 
like you're saying, there was nothing, there was no phenomena arising. And then magically I showed up again. I struck the big bell as the doshi was standing back. And there was so much energy coursing through my body that I could barely stay on the cushion. I had to like grip either side of the cushion so I could just stay put because given that I was in this role as a ceremonial attendant, I couldn't just leave the meditation hall. I felt so much energy that I could, I felt like I could just run a marathon and it was just the most startling experience. One of the most startling experiences that transpired, but it was, it was the absence of experience. I think what you're speaking of is also important and important to say that this kind of experience happens in so many different ways and in different situations. And it can be big, it can be small. There are people who, who have experiences that they barely notice, but they notice the impact after. And there are people for whom, you know, they can, like you said, they can like barely get up from their seat because they're blown over by what's just happened. One of the dangers about talking about this thing is that this kind of thing is that you can chase it. One of the other dangers about it is that you can imagine that it's supposed to look a certain way. And I think it's, I actually think it is useful to talk about it as you have and as I have. And it's important to say that it can look really different for different people. And there's not a right or a wrong way in which it's supposed to go. But I do hope, as you said at the beginning, that your story, my story are encouraging to people in the sense of understanding that consciousness and actually the absence of consciousness, it's profound what's possible. And the impact of giving oneself to a practice in this way and allowing something to transpire is itself, that's a demonstration of the mind of great faith, right? It's saying, okay. And that's what I remember most of my experience where I was like, okay, just, I have to completely let go here go over the edge of the waterfall and I don't know what's going to happen. I agree with you about people saying, oh, this is the goal. And now I need to have some kind of experience. I'll just say that I never even knew anything about Kensho or cessation of consciousness. I was just paying attention to the sound and really just being present as much as possible. So it wasn't anything that I was pursuing. And of course we know that in the pursuit, that makes it harder anyway, for all oh, you people it's who are listening. <laughs> it's completely miserable making, completely miserable making. So yeah. yeah. For me, it was just, I'm practicing with really attuning to the sound. And what I later learned from Harada Roshi, the Renzai master who has a monastery in Whidbey Island, where I did a session. When I was at that session, he said, that the Ronnie's are supposed to help people experience Kensho. Oh, I was like, great. oh, wow, geez. So again, I, I really had read nothing. I didn't know anything about jhana. I didn't know anything about Kensho. I just wanted to be relieved of suffering. Yes. And that That's was very, that I was wanted. very much, yeah, that was my experience <laughs> as well, was that 
because insight meditation wasn't my tradition, I came out of Zen, I knew nothing about any of this. And I later learned and heard from other people who were part of that tradition that there are that people have had the terrible experience of of really efforting and striving and trying so hard to engage in the practices that follow the progress of insight all that trying tends to backfire it tends to actually tighten us and what's needed is a letting go and a, a it's a devotion but also a, a not gripping would you mind talking about how your interest in vipassana came about and how you feel that vipassana and zen how do they complement each other where do they converge where do they diverge and how helpful was it for you to take up this other tradition? Great questions. I didn't do it exactly because I wanted to. I did it more because I had felt I felt like there were doors that closed for me as a lay person within the Soto Zen tradition. And was I talk about it in the book, I was really kind of heartbroken that there was not a path forward for me. So I didn't like willy-nilly just decide, oh, I'm gonna go try something else. Part of the the illness that I was experiencing when I went and sat this retreat was really the result of, I think, a kind of spiritual heartbreak that I was in the midst of. And all of that allowed me to come to that retreat with no expectations, with no, you know, I'd sort of put it all down. I was kind of a mess. I was heartbroken. I was not well. And that's, those were some of the conditions that allowed this to happen. Having said that, I will say that for me, the, there are a number of things that were really helpful about engaging in the insight tradition. One is that there's a lot of mystery in the way that Zen is taught, and there's a lot of beauty in that mystery. And without the kind of intimate, face-to-face, -face, close kind of apprenticeship training that comes in Zen, I think there can be a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about what's actually being offered, particularly in the meditation practice. So for me, in the insight tradition, there is, there is a kind of system of here's how you meditate based on the four foundations of mindfulness. And I found that very helpful to have some structure. And one way to talk about it is that in the Zen tradition, there's a lot of external structure, which we've been talking about, the forms and the formality and the you turn this way and you bow this way. And then Zazen itself is pretty wide open. You, you just sit, right? You do shikantaza. In the insight tradition, there's not so much structure. There is a schedule, but it's a much looser schedule. And I remember the first time I went to an insight meditation retreat, and I saw this huge hall with all these people, and they had backjacks and teddy bears and water bottles. And I was like, oh my God, it's a mess in here. How, no wonder they closed their eyes. You know, I was appalled. And so there's not a lot of external structure, but there is a kind of internal guidance of here are the steps of it. And it's very skillful of a way of kind of gently leading people from paying attention to the body and breath, increasingly opening the awareness until you come to much more of an open awareness that is akin very much to Zazen. Do you think that there are certain personality types that perhaps flourish more in a Vipassana setting with that internal structure 
or flourish more in a setting where there's more external structure? I think probably there are some people who are drawn more to one tradition or another. I, I mean, they do all go to the same place. So it's really a matter of style in a certain way. And, you know, I don't, I don't have so much a feeling of one is better or worse than another. And almost everywhere I go in any tradition I practice in, people always want to know, well, is, how is this one compared to that one? And I don't think that's so useful a way to consider it. But I do feel like there's two sides. One is, can I, can I learn something from the orientation perspective style of the different traditions? And on the other side, if we go jump around too much, then we never really get to drop in somewhere. And you can float around on the surface for a long time and really until you give yourself to something. And I don't really care which tradition or practice, even if it's Buddhist or not, you give yourself to something. That's when you're going to have to rub up against, you know, that snake in a bamboo pole image and find out something about yourself. And if you keep leaving every time things get difficult, you're probably not going to learn that much. Pam, I want to focus on your being lay transmitted by a teacher that we have in common, Tia Strozer. And let's talk about the importance of this lay transmission, because you mentioned how you felt you sort of hit a spiritual dead end, if you will, in the Soto Zen lineage, because there's not such an emphasis on lay practitioners as being Dharma leaders within the Soto Zen lineage. I should just, for those people who are listening now, say that my experience of hitting that glass ceiling, if you will, was some time ago, and that a lot of things have changed since then. So there is now a whole evolution toward what's called lay entrustment that didn't exist when I was at Zen Center. And in fact, for the first years that I was there, there was no path beyond Jukai lay, lay ordination. And I was not the first, but one of a handful of the first lay students to be Shuso or head students. So it, it's kind of crept along incrementally that there's been an acknowledgement of lay practice, but it's always felt a bit of a two-class system. And I, I think still is. And so that's what makes a lay transmission an important thing is that it's, it's a, in a way, a, a putting a stick in the ground to say, no lay practice, householder practice, being in the world practice is its own full path of practice. And that's where there's overlap, I think, between the lay orientation and the the feminine or the movement against a kind of patriarchal system. They're not the same, but they there is some overlap there. Do you feel that the hitting that glass ceiling, I know this was a while back in this Soto Zen lineage as a female lay practitioner, or would have that happened for male lay practitioners as well? I would not say that if I were male, that, that I would have hit any less of a glass ceiling. So I don't think it was gender specific in that way. What I do feel is that part of the patriarchal system includes an orientation toward monastic training is better, being a monk is better, giving things up is better, 
leaving the world is better, not engaging with material things is better. All of that overlay informs how priest or clergy practice or lay practice is felt and held. And most of it is unspoken, but it does show up in the fact that there's limited opportunity for people who are living in the world who want to practice in a full way. And that was the ceiling that I hit was I was fully dedicated to my practice, but I was also living in the world. I had a job. I was married. I was a stepmom and essentially was told, if you want to continue on the path, you have to move back into the temple and live here and get ordained and train as a priest for five years. And I had just spent five years living in the temple and training, and now I was doing something else. And it was there was a very either-or uh, orientation at that time. So what does the lay transmission allow you to do? So for any transmission ceremony, there's two parts, what are called denbo and denkai. And denbo is an acknowledgement of your understanding. So it says your teacher is conferring upon you their belief that you have a deeply embodied understanding of truth, of reality, of practice, of the possibility of, of awakening. And you that's in you deeply enough that you will be able to inspire other people with your presence and speaking and so on. That's Denbo. Denkai is literally the capacity to pass on the precepts. So if you're a lay person and you receive the precepts, you take bodhisattva vows, that you do something called jukai. So lay transmission allows me to pass on the precepts and the lineage to other lay people through a jukai ceremony. And up until myself, within the Suzuki Roshi lineage, different in different lineages, only priests could lay ordain or priest ordain other people, at least in this particular lineage, it gives us some room to really take up the question, well, well, the question for me is what what's really needed for a person who's living fully in the world to wake up, to allow themselves to commit fully to the practice that may not look like living at Tassahara for seven years. So if that's not going to happen, then what? There's not an obvious answer to that question, but I'm happy to get to grapple with it. Well, I'm happy too for all the many lay practitioners out there. And of course, as we know, it's mainly lay practitioners. So I look forward to seeing how your entrepreneurial spirit and creativity shapes shapes this lay transmission ceremony and the lay practice for your students and other students. Yeah. And I will just say that I, I have been the only person in this lineage for some time and have laid pretty low with the exception of writing a book, but very soon there will be a handful of other people who will also either have been recently or are about to be go through lay Dharma transmission. So it feels to me like there's now some momentum behind it. I like to say that I don't imagine we'll see the full flourishing of what this lay path looks like in my lifetime. And that's fine. I, I'm, I feel like I will do my part to sort of set the wheel in motion, as it were, and trust that 
something good will come in future generations. How about we close our conversation with one of your favorite poems of Awakening by Shikibu? Izumi Shikibu. Yeah, so Izumi Shikibu. She was a poet of the Waka style of poetry from Japan's Haiyan period. And she is known for her unapologetic, highly publicized life of love and passion. She was a fixture in the Japanese court, and she had many affairs with the emperor's son and then his brother. And she also converted to Buddhism toward the end of her life. For those who are listening, that it is part of the practice in, in the Zen tradition to write a poem after one has an experience of awakening. And so this is hers. She says, watching the moon at midnight, and the moon is a symbol of awakening in, in Japanese Zen, watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. It's just so beautiful. For me, her poem really points to what I would describe as a kind of feminine quality of awakening, which is a quality of fullness. There's often an emphasis on renunciation, on letting go, on emptiness, on that, that whole dimension, which is important, essential. But her experience is more one of the full moon you know you feel that fullness and no part left out there's this kind of radical inclusivity which i think is an important and complementary aspect of our practice that when we fall too far on the side of renunciation and letting go and emptying out that we can get a little dry and crusty, you know, and in my case, a, a little rigid and tense. And this is a kind of complement to that in which we can infuse our practice with this sense of invitation, of welcoming, of the fullness of being human rather than the whittling away. So that's sort of some riffing on what it is I appreciate in her expression. What I appreciate about your expression is you're just authentic, wholehearted. There's a vibrancy about the way you express the Dharma, and there's a fierce vulnerability. And I, I really appreciate that about your teaching and your presence. So I'm super grateful for your time today, Pam, and for mm -hmm. your dedication to liberation in this lifetime. As we know from our experience, we are, in fact, all connected. So I appreciate walking the path with you in this way. So thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu and Alexis Georgopoulos. <laughs>